Bethany Covenant Church Sermon Podcast. We are a multi-generational community in Berlin, Connecticut. Our services are held Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and you can find out more about us at www.bethanycovenant.org. Well, here we are in week three of our series, Holy Ground, where we're exploring the ways that God can and will meet us to turn what feel like ordinary moments into deep encounters with our Creator. In our first week, we learned that God is already present and has already extended to us an open invitation to experience and enjoy his tangible presence. So all that remains is for us to notice God's presence and respond by making space in our busy lives. We're exploring a number of different kinds of what we're calling spiritual practices that can give us some structure to do this. Inward practices are the ones that help us connect our inner lives with God. And we learned a bit about Lectio Divina and breath prayer and silence on week one. Then on week two, we learned how God values our whole beings. Our faith is one that is embodied. Jesus says that in the new heavens and in the new earth, we don't do away with our physicality. We don't become spirits, but we get new bodies that won't break down. See, to God, our physical lives and our mental lives and our emotional lives are all a part of our spiritual lives. They cannot be separated from one another. And so making time in our ordinary lives to allow God to reconnect them through things like exercise and rest and tactile experiences like coloring and the way that we eat is all a very important part of our spiritual walk. And today we come to the outward spiritual practices. Now, the outward spiritual practices are meant to help us connect with God as we connect with others in our daily lives. And there are a lot of ways that this can happen, but today I want to focus us onto one option in particular. And so to begin, let's meet up with Jesus as he goes up to Jerusalem during a Jewish festival in John chapter 5. And we'll begin in verse 2. In Jerusalem is a pool with the Aramaic name Bethsaida. A certain man was there who had been sick for 38 years. Okay, so let's set the scene. Just north of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, the the top of the mount where the temple is, just north of that, is a gate in the wall called the Sheep Gate, which is where sheep were brought from the fields outside of Jerusalem and prepared for sacrifice at the temple. And right next to this gate is a pair of pools called Bethesda, meaning house of the outpouring, which is fed by a natural spring from underneath. And it turns out that this spring may have had some natural kind of spa-like healing properties to them. Around this pool were built these five colonnades. They're kind of a pavilion made out of wood or stone. And legend, or at the very least local superstition, had it, that every so often, unpredictably, an angel would come and stir the waters of these pools, and that the first person who made it down into the water would be healed of his or her infirmity. And so naturally it became this very popular place for the lame, the paralyzed, the blind, and the sick to come and wait to see if maybe, just maybe, they'd get lucky and they'd be the first one to be healed. But here's the thing. It was a little bit like playing the lottery. Most people who went there knew, at least in the back of their minds, that this was an unlikely chance. 
the, like the chances of winning the lottery, because there were so many others out there, their chances were small of being the first ones to make it into the water, to be healed. But people without any other options will often cling to any hope of a miracle, no matter how small. And so in this scripture, we meet a man who has been lame, which means he's been unable to walk for 38 years. And so the scripture says, when Jesus saw him laying there, knowing that he had already been there a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? It's kind of an odd question to ask somebody who'd been laying there for that long. I mean, everything we've just heard is something Jesus would have known. It was common knowledge that anybody sitting by the pool was at least hoping they'd make it into the water to be healed. But the sick man answered him, Sir, I don't have anyone who can put me in the water when it is stirred up. When I'm trying to get in, someone else has gotten in ahead of me. Okay, that makes sense. If the man has been there for this long, the chances are pretty good that he doesn't have a support system. Well, his answer to Jesus has a hint of desperation to it, since out of all the people in the place, Jesus noticed him for some reason. It also hints at a bit of a lifestyle that he had developed around himself out of necessity. He'd been sick for 38 years, which means that if he didn't have the support structure of a family or friends, begging had become his only means of acquiring food and shelter. But the man's answer is also an affirmation that, yes, I would like to be healed. That's why I've been laying here all this time. I have not been able to. And so Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. Immediately, the man was well, and he picked up his mat and walked. So the outward spiritual practice we're going to explore today is the practice of serving, something that Jesus modeled throughout his entire ministry in all four Gospels. But in this passage in particular, there are two strong implications for us as we pursue this means of connecting with the God who loves us, the God who provides for us, the God who wants us to love and care for those in our community and those around us. So first, Jesus actually noticed the guy. I mean, even in this whole crowd of people, he saw the guy who had been there for at least 38 years. This is a big theme in the book of John. If you read through chapters 9 and 10 especially, and you notice all of the sight imagery in that passage, throughout the book even, John loves to point out how Jesus saw people, how he noticed them in a way that nobody else seemed to. How many of us really see the people who need something? I mean, this is the classic elevator dilemma, right? So you get to the elevator, but just as the doors begin to close, you notice that someone else out there needs to get in as well. But they're just far enough away that if you hold the doors, it's going to be super awkward and probably kind of inconvenient for you. So do you hold the doors or do you pretend not to notice and you focus instead on making sure that you chose the proper floor because those buttons on the panel there really are interesting. I know it's a dumb example, but take that then to the next level. Do we see when our spouses need help and act? Do we respond when our coworkers need a hand? What about our kids when they need help? What about our fellow students at school? Or maybe we go even bigger than that. In your town, do you know anybody that actually needs your help? The poverty rate in Connecticut is not a small number, which means that if we think that our towns look poverty-free, 
it means that we can't see it because it means we're not looking. But Jesus is the son of God, the God who sees, the God in whose image we are made and the God whose example we are to follow. And so if we are to be people who respond to the mercy of God, if we claim to worship God, then we had better start to notice the needs of the people around us. But not in that self-righteous kind of way, not self-righteous service, the kind that's all about impressing others or looking good in serving or the kind that picks and chooses the kinds of people that it's willing to serve or the kind that only wants to do big service projects instead of the small day-to-day things in hiddenness. Richard Foster, author of Celebration of Discipline, writes, In the discipline of service, there is also great liberty. Service enables us to say no to the world's games of promotion and authority. It abolishes our need and desire for a pecking order. Nothing disciplines the inordinate desires of the flesh like service, and nothing transforms the desires of the flesh like serving in hiddenness. But self-righteous service fractures community. In the final analysis, once all religious trappings are removed, it centers on the glorification of the individual. So Jesus saw the man who needed his help. But Jesus also asked the man if he wanted his help. Now that may seem like an exercise in redundancy and maybe even inefficiency. But asking the question gives the man dignity. You, sir, get to decide if this happens today or not. You've been ignored by so many for 38 years, but today I see you. And I give you the chance to make your own decision. I give you agency. And the question should sound familiar. In week one, we heard about Jesus calling his disciples. And he asked them, what is it that you want? Or what is it that you're looking for? Now, he obviously knew he's Jesus. But in asking the question, he shows them that he cares about them. And he shows them respect for their ability to speak and choose for themselves what it is that they so deeply need and desire. Now, this has long been a common issue in mission work, especially from ministry uh, from predominantly white churches uh, in ministry to special Uh, racial solidarity, in ministry to the urban poor, and often on international mission trips. It's often called the white savior complex, and it can best be described like this. Those of us who have long been in the position to offer help assume both that the help is wanted and that it is wanted in the way in which we choose to offer it. We have rarely sought to first ask the questions to understand the need from those in need. And thus we have not humbly considered whether or not what we have to give will bring the abundant life that Jesus came to bring. Instead, we have most often been content to offer band-aid solutions that in reality are more about us feeling good about ourselves than about actually being helpful. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Back in 2010, where there was this huge earthquake that hit the Caribbean nation of Haiti with its epicenter right in the capital of Port-au-Prince. 
And the entire city basically turned to dust overnight. Many people had obviously lost their homes, and so the United Nations responded with donations of tents. They would come into the city and set up a site for distribution, and they would tell people that just outside the city there's all this open land that wasn't affected by the earthquake so much. So please take this tent and take your family and set up those tents on that land so that we can begin clearing the debris inside the city. But you know what ended up actually happening? Instead of taking their tents outside the city like the UN told them to, the Haitians chose to pick the nearest clear spot of land, the nearest little field, or the nearest patch in the median of the highway. And they would set up their tent as close together as possible. See, the Haitians didn't want to leave their city. Haitian culture very much accepts whatever happens as fate, and so they take what they're given and they just make do. The UN never bothered to ask what they needed from them. And so they simply came in and said, now we're going to help you. In their eagerness, they made bad assumptions, and so they treated the Haitians more as objects to be fixed, not as people who have, uh, they know their own needs and desires. Now, I know this story because I was actually there. The church I was serving at the time was asked by some of the long-term missionaries in Haiti if we would be able to come and help. And so on the ground, six months after being asked, it was hot, dusty, 110 degrees and 98% humidity, working with the locals to build a new church and community center right over top of the ruins of the last church, which is brutal work, especially if you're used to a drier climate like South Dakota. But as we're driving around the city to get to the build site, I keep seeing all these fields full of tents, all these uh, buildings, temporary buildings set up in the middle of the medians of the roads. And Phoenix, the Haitian pastor that I was driving with, said that if only the UN had asked the Haitians, the whole problem could have been avoided. Again, Richard Foster writes this, self-righteous service is insensitive. It insists on meeting the need even when the desire to do so would be destructive. It demands the opportunity to help. True service can withhold the service just as freely as perform it. It can listen with tenderness and patience before acting. It can serve by waiting in silence. Okay, so here's maybe the other way that this could go. When I was in seminary, I spent two weeks in India in this little town called Danishpet, about six hours south of Bangalore, working with the Bethel Bible Institute, which has a campus that includes things like Uh, an orphanage and a grade school and a hospital and even a Bible college. Now, one of my jobs there was leading worship with my friend Adam and with a couple of the Indian college students every morning before breakfast. And about two-thirds of the way through our time there, one of the college students asked us, would we like to learn some music in Tamil, the local dialect? Now, I was hesitant. I knew that this was going to be hard, and I didn't want to mess it up. But Adam was a glutton for punishment, and he said yes. And so for the next, I don't know how many hours, the five of us on the worship team sat, huddled around my notebook, transliterating this very vowel-laden language of Tamil into something that Adam and I could remember as we tried to lead the grade school students in one of their favorite songs, Yen Wirani Yesu. Now, I remember the morning that we led it. We were rehearsing with the worship team just before chapel started, and one of the faculty, an Indian woman named Pauline, came in 
And I will never forget the stunned look on her face as she listened to us practice. Afterwards, she told me none of the other American teams that came there had ever learned their music before. And she thanked us for trying. Now, I took it as maybe my accent wasn't that great. And she said, she kind of wobbled her head as Indians do and said, it's okay, I understood you. Good outward ministry partners with those in need by actively listening, thoughtfully discerning, and serving not from a place of power, but from a heart of humility. We cannot assume that others want our help or that we know what is most helpful. Of course, in the same way, not knowing those answers is not an excuse to not act. Rather, the eyes of Jesus should be in our eyes to notice and with deep care we should ask the question. And that should drive us to thoughtful service. I think it's safe to say that Jesus was confounding to the religious leaders of his day. On one occasion in Luke's gospel, a religious leader, a Pharisee, comes up to Jesus to test him with a question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Luke 10, 25. Jesus asked the Pharisee a question of his own. What is written in the law? How do you read it? The Pharisee responds, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Listen to what Jesus says next to the man who was testing him. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Note that Jesus did not say, know this and you will live, nor did he say, believe this and you will live. Jesus said, Do this, and you will live. Do choose to love God with your whole being. Do choose to love your neighbor with as much care as you love yourself. Do. Jesus is looking for love action in our lives. Love action because of what we know, and love action because of what we believe. Love action based on the Bible and the promptings of the Holy Spirit. This love action has another word for it. It's the word service. Service is the outward discipline of loving our neighbor. Service is one of the behaviors that both displays and authenticates our genuine all-in love for God. To illustrate service, that is to give an example of what Pastor Chris was teaching earlier in our worship I want to take you on another holy ground place. It's not a beautiful hiking trail filled with the colors of fall, nor is it kayaking on a local river with the same gorgeous scenery. And those were amazing and wonderful experiences from which we learned a great deal the last couple of weeks. Instead, I invite you to join me on a field trip to one of the largest high schools in Connecticut. That's right. One of our local high schools is holy ground. Come along. And you'll see.
Well, here we are at New Britain High School, home of the Golden Hurricanes, and also a place where we find lifelong member of Bethany Covenant Church, Sandy Dickner. Hi, Sandy. How are you? Hi, Craig. I'm well. How about yourself? Good. I'm very well. Thank you. It's good to see you here. Now, what do you do at New Britain High School? I'm a physical education and health teacher here. Been here about 24 years in the district, and I also coach unified sports, which is where the intellectually disabled and the regular ed students compete in sport. You know, last fall, I walked the halls with you on a couple of occasions, and uh, I was stunned. I shouldn't have been stunned because I remember how you were when you were a young person in the youth group when I was here before as a youth pastor. But I was stunned at how many students came up to greet you You must take uh, quite an interest in them. Uh, How have you fostered such strong relationships with these kids? Well, I love kids. I love everything about them. Um, In our classes, we have five classes, about 40 students per class every day for a semester. So what I do um, or try to do is get to know everything about my students. I ask them a million questions through the course of the semester, find out what sports they're in, if they're in a musical group, uh, the band, ROTC, just something they enjoy. And I just ask them about that, and I try to go to games. Um, if I go to a football game, I see football players, I see the band, I see uh, the Knets, I see ROTC, I see you know, half the schools at our football games. So I'll either go to a game and try to get to know them better and find out more uh, about them and talk to them about that. Or I'll go to the Magical Feast, which I try to do every year, or um, just whatever events they're a part of. So obviously you do more than just notice them. You really dig deep and get to know them. I I enjoy them. I love the kids and just want to find out everything about them. Oh, that's great. Now, last year we held a Dream Again workshop at the church, and Uh, The attendees said they wanted Bethany to involve people in serving our neighbors both near and far. You came up to me right after that meeting and grabbed my arm and said, you know, Craig, I have an idea, a way that could help out some of the New Britain High School students and their families for Thanksgiving. Tell me about that conversation we had and what happened next. Well, I knew the church, as you had mentioned, was looking for a possible project to do. And we are near right here in New Britain, and, and we our church was from New Britain. So being here at the high school, there's great need in families, whether it's shelter, uh, housing, or uh, food, clothing. And um, we, I had talked to our social workers a little bit and said, what is, what is a need here? And they told me that an organization that supplied Thanksgiving meals um, the previous year uh, wasn't able to do it this particular particular year. And uh, so I asked you if that was some possibility of our church helping out with Thanksgiving meals and had you, yourself, and Rich come into the school, meet the social workers, which we have at least seven, and um, the mushroom from there, being able to supply meals. And I think we generated over 50 meals to our uh, families, um, some traditional Thanksgiving meals and some Arabic uh, halal meat meals, and it worked out really well. And our church was so generous and willing to help with gift cards and food, and um, they were amazing. And also at the same time, a family had lost their um, housing due to fire, and our church also helped out with that family with, with um, clothes and gift cards, and that was great also. 
That was great. In fact, it was fabulous. The, the conversations going on at church were amazing. But at the same time, um, uh, I think it's important to note that we're looking at doing that again this next this coming year. So when should people begin to hear about uh, Thanksgiving baskets for New Britain High School again? Well, uh, as soon as possible, if they're interested, uh, they can certainly contact me through email or call me, which will be coming out in uh, an email. Um, and hopefully very, very soon we'll hear about it. And there is great need again this year and probably more of a need because of what's going on in schools today. For sure, for sure. Uh, one more thing. Not only did you notice a need and investigate it and get the information on it, you enlisted your church family to be involved in helping meet a need. That's an amazing gift that you have of getting people involved. But then on top of that, you also enlisted a number of students and former students from New Britain High School coming over and meeting needs at Bethany Covenant. Tell us a little bit about what happened there. Well, as a matter of fact, I spoke to some students last night to help with our maintenance day, November 7th, coming up, um, and they're willing to help. And our students and former students uh, helped out with the maintenance day at church, whether it was fall or spring. Uh, they also helped after memorial services, a few with food um, service, whether it's pouring coffee or cleaning up after. Um, also, after our Christmas concert, our students helped, and... They uh, worked with our youth at times, so they loved coming in and helping. And at New Britain High, there's something called a capstone project um, where our seniors needed to do 30 hours of community service, so it helped them with their hours, but they loved coming and help. You know, service is a discipline of our faith. It's an outward discipline, a discipline that we project and give to other people. Um, Jesus, in fact, declared in Matthew 23, 11, that service is what determines greatness in his kingdom. And Bethany is blessed with many people who do a lot of service. You're among that group. You are not only one who serves, but you enlist people to join you in helping, and you enlist people who are being served to serve again themselves. Um, it's amazing to watch that happen. I remember that as a youth, you did that as well. But now it's, it's gotten much larger and more involved, and it involves kids that are even graduated from New Britain High School. Sandy, thank you for your example of the service that God wants us to give to those around us. And thank you for your part in making New Britain High School really holy ground because the action of God is taking place here, and it's through you. We are so grateful. Thank you very much. Thank you. And one thing I just wanted to mention that on my way to work almost every day, not every day, but almost every day, I say, in the car among seven radio stations I'm flipping through, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And I tried to go to work with that glad um, attitude and just have a very gracious attitude of being part of our church and being able to connect New Britain High with our church family. Well, thank you, Sandy. God bless. Thank you. was delightful, wasn't it? Thank you, Sandy. And now back to this conversation Jesus is having with a religious leader, a Pharisee. The Pharisee asked Jesus one more question. Who is my neighbor? Luke 10, 29. 
Jesus responds by telling him the story of the Good Samaritan. Four people in the parable, a wounded traveler, two religious leaders, a priest and a Levite, and a racially despised Samaritan. All three notice the wounded traveler. The priest and the Levite have a similar reaction. They avoid contact and they pass by on the other side of the road. The Samaritan, however, responds differently. He stops. He gives assistance on site by treating the wounds the traveler had. And he takes the wounded traveler to a local inn and pays for him to be cared for. Jesus then turns to the Pharisee and asks a final question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? The Pharisee responds, the one who had mercy on him. Listen to what Jesus says to the Pharisee. Go and do likewise. Jesus does not answer the Pharisee's question. The question was, who is my neighbor? But Jesus drives home his point about what it means to be a neighbor. Jesus shows one way that we can love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus tells the Pharisee to do likewise. That is, be a neighbor to others. In the name of Jesus, I tell myself and you all, do likewise. Love your neighbor as yourself. Notice, and then do something to help. Do something to bless. Do something to care. And know this, wherever this happens becomes holy ground because the actions of God are happening in that place. May it be so. In the name of Jesus, may it be so. Amen.